0: Hello, and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah, and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics, and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learned something and enjoy listening. Today I am speaking to the very special Caroline Hickman who has spent much of her career working with young people to delve into their relationship between their mental health and the climate crisis. This is such a topical and important issue so thank you so much Caroline for coming to speak to Psych Summaries today. I would love to start by you introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about your journey and your career today. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks for
1: inviting me to this conversation. So my name's Caroline Hickman. I'm both an academic and a psychotherapist. So I'm gonna be talking about my work specifically around children and young people and climate anxiety, but I also do a lot of work in psychotherapy with adults as well. So I'm a lecturer at the University of Bath. I teach in social work and climate psychology there. I work with a group called the Climate Psychology Alliance. Psychologists, psychiatrists, academics, artists, researchers, and the group's been existing for 10 years trying to bring a psychological understanding of the climate emergency and biodiversity crisis. So we're using a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic model, which includes the individual, collective, social and the unconscious, and also the social injustice and political aspects of that.
0: Have you always been an activist or has this been purely academic and professional? I lived in Egypt
1: for a couple of years and spent my whole time underwater as a diving instructor. So I'd been an environmentalist and I'd been a psychotherapist before that, but suddenly spending daily time underwater in that environment, seeing the subtle changes that were taking place to the coral reefs, to the fish, to the environment, and noticing how that environment was changing. I think we can sort of often in the West feel quite disconnected from nature. Yeah. and from the environment in which we live, and particularly if you're living in cities. But suddenly, by immersing myself in that environment, it started to affect me personally more. And I really felt the grief and the rage and the sadness and the frustration of watching this beautiful environment disappear. So I came back to the UK, re-established my teaching and started doing research. And for the last five, six years now, I've been researching how children and young people feel about the climate and biodiversity crisis. And that's with children in the UK, but also the Maldives and Nigeria and Brazil and France and other parts of Europe, talking to children and young people globally about how they feel. Because a lot of the research up to that point, was about children and the impact of climate on children, but wasn't really putting children at the centre of that research yeah. and saying, and how does it feel for you? I really think it's important that we continue to find ways to talk yeah. about eco-anxiety and distress, because in a way it's an emergent mental health problem. I really, really would not want to pathologise yeah. or label... Eco-anxiety or grief or depression or despair as a mental illness. You know, we measure mental health by our capacity to respond to what's going on in the world around us. So actually, it's a rational response to feel anxious and upset and angry and scared and depressed. Mm -hmm. The important thing is to support people of whatever age with the distress, to create meaning from that because it's there for a reason. It's there because you care about the environment. So I don't want to take this away. I don't want to dismiss it. I don't want to minimise it. But I do need to support people in finding ways to make it tolerable because we also need to continue to live. And that action can be external by taking action in the world. But I also talk about internal Activism about emotional activism Mm. that we need to find complex ways to take care of ourselves in this and be compassionate to ourselves because that empathy also connects us with the suffering of people globally. When I talk with the children in the Maldives and Nigeria, my capacity to empathize with how it might feel for them you can never exactly know, can you? But you can empathize and you can extend that understanding. Mm. to what they might be going through and that I think motivates us to care and to act but also to share what they're going through which reduces their isolation because they're often left feeling the world doesn't care
0: yeah
1: and that that causes additional mental health distress
0: yeah feeling invalidated and disempowered not listened to would you be able to just provide a definition of that term that we hear eco-anxiety? I know that you said that you move hmm. towards kind of a more eco empathy and eco-compassionate approach, but because we tend to use that term in the media and in research, how do you determine suffering as eco-anxiety?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of things I need to say. So, to talk about the experience of it Mm. and then talk about around it, about what's creating it and what can make it worse. Um, And I think it's always about being relational, Mm. that we have to look relationally. So we'll start with the individual, how that individual feels in relation to the environment. and in relation to the world around them and in relation to what's going on in the world around them. So the experience is always a mixture of emotional responses. It's not just anxiety. I have no problem with the term. I know it's questionable and it's debatable and we need to have those conversations about how helpful is it. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, labelling can be reductive and just limiting But on the other hand, the majority of people I speak with, and particularly children and young people, find the term really valuable because it's something they can understand and relate to. And it gives a name and it gives a a way of them starting to talk about their distress. I think the first response emotionally is often anxiety. So if you think psychologically, how we respond emotionally to a threat, we can basically fight something or we can run away from something or we can kind of freeze because we're like, I want to fight, but I don't know what to do. And, oh, it's overwhelming. It gets triggered when we feel threatened or scared or overwhelmed or something new is happening in the world that we can't make sense of. So those get triggered and they trigger the anxiety. But what quickly follows frequently is a mix of feelings not just anxiety. The anxiety is the gateway emotional response. And it happens as you watch the fires in Portugal, in America. As you witness that, that witnessing triggers the anxiety and the distress. And we feel threatened. And we're, you know, we're so connected that we see this stuff And then there are distressing scenes of animals running from the fires and unable to get away from the fires and people watching their homes get destroyed and the fires in the Amazon and the Arctic, they're huge and you see aerial shots and you think this is Armageddon, this is the end of the world, this is, you know, how can the Arctic be on fire? And then often what follows is a frustration and an anger. Why aren't people doing something Mm -hmm. about this? And the people in power, why are they not acting? And then there's the incongruence, the sort of the discord that gets set off in your brain, where we declare a climate emergency and then continue to cut down trees. And then you get presented with economic arguments and technological arguments and excuses and defences and often it can feel so overwhelming that depression despair hopelessness nihilism what's the point what's Mm -hmm. the point in going to university what's the point in getting out of bed in the morning and a depressive state is absolutely natural and you know that cycle that wave that you go through of the anxiety and then the collapse into the depression and despair is actually really really important but we collectively with the western medical model we don't like feeling anxiety and we don't like feeling depression they're Mm -hmm. not pleasant experiences however there is wisdom in them because actually that despair is really valuable in terms of accurately representing how you can feel when you're looking at the scale of this Mm -hmm. and other people's failure to act Mm. so I want to be really clear about how I'm framing and defining eco-anxiety is that it's this mix of emotions but it's twofold it is both the response we have when we look at what's going on in the world the distress the anxiety the despair and the threat so it's directly in relation to the world but the really important thing is equally damaging and destructive is adults failure to act I'm interviewing children as young as six, Mm. up to mid-twenties. What I'm finding is there's not that much difference between a 24-year-old's feelings and an eight-year-old's feelings.
0: When you're 24, you're much more able and you have the skills, you have the tools. Yes, you might really struggle, but you might have a broad social circle and you are much more interdependent with your family. You're able to have these conversations. But when you are six... You yeah. rely so heavily on support Clearly. from adults and yeah. it must be frightening to feel these things.
1: Well, I think it is terrifying, but it within that, there is betrayal and abandonment. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of my work in the past for decades, plus still, is working with children and adults to recover from trauma. They're being traumatized in that relationship with the people around them who are supposed to care for them yeah the very people who are supposed to take care of you are the people who are hurting you and so for a child you can't compute this they're supposed to look after me and they're telling me they love me mm-hmm. and they're telling me that they want me to have a happy future but the actions they're taking are the exact opposite of that so that creates a cognitive dissonance and a distress in children. However, I've got something really interesting to say about this. I've been talking with groups of adults. So there's a group of climate scientists that I was speaking with last year. And these are all older white men in powerful positions who've been involved in this for decades. And you would think, you would happily assume that these guys have got power to change things. But what is fascinating is listening to these men they all said the same things to me emotionally that the youth climate strikers are saying. So these men in their 60s were reflecting the feelings of 10 year olds. These men felt powerless, they felt helpless, they felt anxious, they felt depressed, they felt they weren't being treated with respect, they weren't being listened to because what they've been doing is producing the research and the findings and the warnings and saying, do something, do something and ignored. So actually, emotionally, although you've got an absolutely different demographic with these powerful older men, they feel the same often as the younger people because of that experience of powerlessness.
0: Mm, That's so sad. I mean, not shocking, but nonetheless really upsetting for every person involved and feeling awful about this and it actually brings me on to ask whether you have a standardized test or tools to differentiate between different levels of eco-anxiety. I've tried to develop this sort of frame of saying well there are mild
1: symptoms and then severe symptoms of eco-anxiety and then extreme symptoms so at a mild level, I think we all globally have some eco-anxiety.
0: Yeah,
1: it might yeah. be slightly under the surface. It might be slightly out of awareness. We might be a little bit unconscious of this. Mm. But under the surface, it doesn't take much. You just have to watch a David Attenborough documentary or look at the news and your anxiety appears. Yeah. Now, those things are not making you anxious. What it does is it just brings it into conscious awareness. Then with with more people, it's much more conscious. They're much more worried, but they're able to kind of put it to one side and get on with their lives and enjoy watching something on television or decide that actually a walk in nature is nice. And there you think, okay, I'm recycling. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I've moved to green electricity suppliers. I've stopped drinking cow's milk. You feel comforted. By the fact you're doing something. But that group, that's fairly average. There is groups beyond that where it is infinitely more severe. The distress is extraordinary. So I'm talking with children as young as 10, 11, who feel suicidal. They feel such levels of distress and despair. And they're unable to kind of separate themselves from it. They just feel overwhelmed with the despair. Every single time they're going to come back to, and it's the adults around me who don't care. That is what really causes extraordinary levels of distress. All we ever want in the world is to feel listened to, validated, understood, and then we don't feel alone. Mm. The problem is, is when children are saying, I'm scared about the future, I'm scared about the environment, and I'm generalizing, Mm. a lot of the time they're going to get responses from adults around them saying, oh, you shouldn't worry so much about that. Oh, just concentrate on your schoolwork. Oh, it's okay. We will sort it out. Because adults and parents, I want to be compassionate to them. Mm. They are hotwired to, and I'm making assumptions you know, the parent is hot-wired to reassure the child and reduce their anxiety and distress. That's what you do as a parent. Now, it's appropriate to do that. If your child says, I'm scared of these school exams, it's absolutely appropriate to say, oh, look, don't worry too much. Let's do a revision chart. Let's, You'll be all right. You yeah. can do this to really boost the child's sense of capability and build yeah. their self-esteem and reduce their anxiety. It's absolutely appropriate. The problem is, is when parents use that approach with children about the climate and the biodiversity crisis, it doesn't work because the child knows that that crisis is continuing to get worse. I'm going to give you some quotes from children. I'm not only allowed to use her name, I have to use her name, otherwise I'm in trouble. Sophia was aged eight. So when I started the research, I spoke with quite a lot of children about how do I talk to you about this without terrifying you? Mm. You know, how do we talk about scary things? And she said, adults have got to tell children the truth. Because if you don't tell us the truth, you're lying to us. She said, and if you're lying to us, I can't trust you. Mm. And if I can't trust you, I can't talk to you about how I feel. That just leaves me not only worrying about the climate, but now feeling like I'm being lied to. Double trouble. (laughs) She She said, but tell me the good stuff and then tell me the bad stuff. She said, you know, don't tell me all the bad stuff all at once. And she's quite right. And this is how we need to talk to children about this. Here's some of the good stuff that's happening and here's some of the worrying stuff that's happening. But you cannot just focus on the good stuff because if you miss out the scary stuff, if you miss out that whole half of things, mm. then you're only giving half the story. Yeah. Because the reality is, is that children are online, children know the truth. So it's not just what will the world will be like in my future, mm. but how do I continue to go to school? How do I manage to care about that and keep going on a daily basis? Yeah. What yeah. you need to do is look at the both and. It's both scary scary in terms of mental health and there's good stuff that's happening. But it's difficult because then we feel out of control and we feel vulnerable. Human beings want certainty. OK, yeah, it's yeah. it's a fatal flaw um, <laughs> because good luck with that. You know, I think I had certainty sort of for 10 minutes about seven years ago on a Tuesday afternoon. You know, it's like we have to live with a changing world, well, right?
0: Particularly the last year. I mean, we've all oh. learned, haven't we, that it's just not in the question. We can't. We have no certainty of anything. So back to that
1: original question, like, what is it? It's all of those things,
0: but it is
1: also, it's not just individual concern. It's concern about the politics and it dovetails perfectly with concern about social justice because climate change is a problem of global injustice. We're not going to address individual eco-anxiety unless simultaneously we address global injustice address the systemic racism, address inequality, address those things, because it is all part of the same cultural shift. It's a paradigm shift, which psychologically means if I hurt the environment, I'm hurting myself. And it's about that selfishness. There's a wonderful quote from Gus Speth, who is a climate scientist. And this was in 2015. He said... I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse and climate change. And I thought that within 30 years, good science, we could address those problems. Mm. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and a cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. What we need is the technological solutions, Mm. but also the psychological, relational, social change. I want to give you a couple of quotes from some of the children in the Maldives. This was two years ago. They said to me, uh, We were online and we saw that the people in Iceland had a funeral for a glacier. And they said, This is beautiful it's really lovely they said but they said we're going to be underwater soon who's going to have a funeral for us children in the global south in these vulnerable countries Nigeria the Maldives Vanuatu the Marshall Islands they know that the world is turning its back on saving those countries another child said to me Humans always create what we're afraid of, and humans fear death. So we've created our own death and the apocalypse. This is 14-year-olds who are clearly framing it in this way. Another child said climate change is like Thanos in the Avengers Endgame, whose ideology is to kill off half the life in the universe so the other half can thrive. They said, but we're the half
0: being killed off. That, that's so sad. I mean, these are children. And this is an issue that some people don't even validate as being something that's important. And yet there are people who are struggling every day, there's somebody that feels like their life is less meaningful or important. And that is not okay for children to feel like that. So I guess, What I would like to kind of end on is what can we do to build resilience? Is it about building communities of like-minded people? Is it about petitioning to overhaul policies in the government? Is there a little bit of hope for people if they are feeling this way? What are some ways that you would normally support young people with when they are suffering with this?
1: Ah, Absolutely. Good question. So in the Climate Psychology Alliance, we, we talk about radical hope. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems with hope is it can be very naive, where it's actually a fantasy of rescue, that the government will save us, technology will save us. And that's where you project into the future, someone will save me. The problem with that is it sets up a dependency and a sort of childlike helpless engagement with it. So naive hope is potentially actually very, very dangerous because it creates It's like telling children a fairy story when they go to bed at night. So they're not so alarmed. You need action alongside that. And you need the fairy story not to be full of holes. And you need not to be continuing to cut down trees to build HS2. We need to not be opening a new runway at Heathrow at the same time as this. We need to face real truths because they're lulling people into a false sense of security. So it'll be all right. We've got time. We're nearly meeting the Paris Agreement of 1.5. Nearly, we're only just missing it. It's not that bad. 1.5 was already incredibly destructive and dangerous Mm. Mm. for low-lying Pacific nations. 1.5 was a baseline where we would have less damage to coral reefs and to people around the world. You know, 1.5 was not a good thing to get to. It's not
0: enough, yes.
1: It's not enough. So you can, you know, that. so when we talk about hope, it's really important to cut through that narrative and get real about the reality of what, reaching 1.5 is all about so you need to balance that up with and here's the horrible scary reality and people are very pejorative about this in the media they call it kind of doom and gloomism and Mm. pessimism it's actually about standing in the middle of those two places which is one of realism and that's what radical hope can do you can see you can look and you can say here's the scary reality And here's the great stuff that's being developed in wind technology and, you know, people coming up with innovative ways of challenging this. So your question, absolutely. It is about finding community, finding groups. Do not do this on your own Mm -hmm. because you feel isolated and hopeless and alone. Mm -hmm. Find your pack, find your clan. If you're surrounded by people who are in denial and dismissing and disavowing the severity of this, you may have to live with these people. They may be your family, Mm -hmm. but that will cause enormous distress and despair and Mm -hmm. isolation. Live with your family and love your family because they're family. And find other people to love and live with and work with and can connect with who are like minded and care like you care. Yeah. So you might have to do both. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. You don't have to leave one group to be part of another group. Yeah. Find your pack, find your clan of belonging, which is more about your soul and your heart. Every time I have those conversations with groups of young people, I feel better because I feel like I connect and belong with them. You know, paradoxically, by standing alongside them and being with them in that frustration and distress and anger, I feel better because at least I'm with them. Key to that is also grieving what we've done. Mm -hmm. But we do that in an active grief way in order to allow ourselves to move through that. But we can convert that into action. But that action does not have to be activism in the world. It can also be action in terms of taking care of that tree in your garden, Mm -hmm. caring about the future of that tree or that garden or that plant. So it can be on a small scale and on a big scale, and they're both equally important. And I wouldn't want you to kind of dismiss the small stuff because the small stuff really counts. And I'm going to finish with a cute story for you to sort of symbolize and represent that relationship between the small and the large so there's a little boy going on a walk on a beach it could be a little girl we can have one of each walking down the beach one day behind their parents Mm -hmm. and it's been a big storm and the storm has thrown up loads of starfish and creatures from the sea and they're on the beach and they're dying and there's hundreds of them and the little boy and the little girl are finding the ones that are still alive and picking them up and throwing them back in the water. And the parents in front are sort of frustrated because they want to get on with the walk. And the parents turn around and say, look, there's hundreds of them. You know, why are you bothering? You can't really make a difference. And the children, the little boy and the little girl pick up a starfish each and throw it back in the water. And they say,
0: well, I made a difference to that one. I really love that story because it reminds me of, I think it's the Dalai Lama who says, if you think that you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. And it's so, I I think it's so powerful. Starting somewhere is is great and empowering. And I just Mm. hope that on a wider scale that these movements will translate into policy. We need
1: legal change. Nothing is going to shift without legal change. Yeah. So that's crucial. We need education change. So we need this in our schools. Mm-hmm. We need psychological change. So that's the work that we're trying to do. We need storytellers. We need poets. We need artists. We need children. We need that wonderful mix. I have hope in that transformational collective shift. If we pull together, we have amazing creativity and capacity for innovation.
0: It sounds like the group that you belong to is doing just that. You're taking people from all disciplines and all putting thought into it. Climate Psychology Alliance. Okay, perfect. And then they can just go and get involved in the work that you're doing.
1: Absolutely. And we're really keen to encourage new people to join. You can get access to our training events. But we're running climate cafes for groups of people in the community and teaching them how to set up their own climate cafes wow. to really set up these conversations in the community. Mm. So really, it's really about creating these lovely networks. Okay. Um Brilliant. So we're really
0: keen for people to just okay. come along and have a rummage. Perfect. Well, it has been so interesting. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for asking me. I really think that people are going to feel empowered, hopefully, and be able to take some tools away. So thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck with it. Thank, thank you. you for what you were doing too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Caroline Hickman. I hope it was both insightful and thought-provoking. And if you would like to learn more about Caroline's work with the Climate Psychology Alliance, I will add links in the information If you did enjoy this episode and want to keep up with Psych Summaries, please do give feedback and subscribe as well as follow at Psych Summaries on Instagram. Thanks for listening. See you next time.